I know there's no one in here that's ever resented the Lord or had anger towards God in any way. We've never experienced disappointment, have we? No. So the issue with Jonah is Jonah wanted it his way. Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. He wanted this city completely wiped out. He didn't like these people. These people were hard on his people. There was feuds between them and wars between him and the Ninevite, his people and the Ninevites. Jonah wanted to kill them all, right? Jesus, just kill them all. You can sort them out. I don't care. You sort them out later, but I just need you to kill them all. But Jesus wanted mercy. Aren't you glad Jesus wants mercy, right? He chooses mercy. If the Lord has a choice between judgment and mercy, he chooses mercy. Grace and destruction, he chooses grace. Sometimes he's put in no other position other than to go the other way. But if you want to know what his first option is, the Lord always his first option is mercy. And he wanted to give Nineveh mercy. He wanted to give them a second chance. And Jonah didn't like it. And he went through the city, right? He did what God told him to. We talked about it last week, the first time God told them to go to Nineveh. I want you to speak over them, and I want you to engage them. Jonah, of course, doesn't listen and goes on a ship, going the opposite direction, gets thrown into the water. The fish comes, does a supernatural turnaround, and the Bible says the word of the Lord appeared to Jonah again the second time, and the language in the scripture is show up and open up your mouth, right? God's intent for Jonah was for him to go to a people he didn't want to be around. His intent for Jonah was that Jonah engaged them, right? You know, as a Christian, you're supposed to engage people you don't like. You're supposed to do good to evil. You're supposed to do good to those who do evil to you. What? You're supposed to actually speak over them. That's the language. God didn't tell Jonah to speak down to them. He told them to speak over them, right? And God always calls us higher. His word for us is always higher than where we are. And God wanted to call them higher. He wanted the people to come higher, to come up out of their wickedness, to come up out of their lawlessness, to come up out of the ways that they were living and come to a higher place. He told them to to speak over them and he told them to engage them. Jonah's like, no thanks. I got better plans. And so Jesus tells Jonah, all right, Jonah, I need something. God needs something. Say, God doesn't need anything. He needs an activation point in the earth. I can tell you that. He has to have an activation point in the earth. The Bible says that God's eyes roam to and fro. He's looking for someone to stand in a gap that he might not bring judgment. You say, well, God's going to bring judgment. Not if he brings somebody to stand in a gap. He's looking for someone. That's what the scripture says. The Lord needs an activation point a lot of times. He needs someone to pray. He needs someone to stand in a gap. He needs someone to go and someone to do. You understand that? Say, God can do anything he wants. Yes, but you're his body, are we not? Are we the body of Christ? Is that what the Bible says? We are the activation point of the kingdom. We are the activation point of everything God wants to do in the earth. And the Lord wanted an activation point because he wanted to give mercy to Nineveh. The purposes of Nineveh and Nineveh's Nineveh's prophetic destiny and history had not been fulfilled. And they were going down the wrong path. And so the Lord said, I'm going to give them a second chance and I'm going to see if they'll reset themselves and I need an activation point. And so Jonah, you're the guy. This wasn't foreign to Jonah. Jonah was raised in the house of a prophet. Some of you raised in Christian homes, right? You're raised by believers. You should be the least bigoted of us all. You should be the least religious of us all. You should be the least prejudicial against preferences, right? Jonah was prejudicial against preferences. He just didn't like these people. He didn't like the way they dressed. He didn't like the way they smelled. He didn't like their food. He didn't like the way they talked. And the Lord said, you're going to go and deal with these people. And he said, no, I'm not. Wrong guy. I'm off. And God did not speak to Jonah outside of the context in which he was. The Lord will not call you to something that is outside of your context. He's called you to reach the people that are in your immediate circle. And a lot of those people, you may not like them. Business associates, you may not like them. They're your mission. Coworkers, they're your mission. Family, dare we say that? <gasps> we may, we, you know, uh, Corey's here. He's been telling me a lot, and he's in the back with the kids, but he was telling me like he's been going back to his family with the intention of being on a missions trip. He said, I go back home to my family, and my intention is to evangelize, right? Even if he shows up like Jonah and says, Listen up, losers. Jesus is the way, and y'all aren't going to make it without him. That's what Jonah did. Listen up. (laughs) 
40 days. That's all you got. <laughs> Turn it around. But you go with an intention. God has not called you to reach people outside your context. Jonah was a prophet. Prophets spoke to nations. Prophets spoke to the nation in the Old Testament, and they spoke unto the nations. They spoke to God's nation, his people, but God also used them to speak to the nations, right? And so Jonah would have known this. This wouldn't be foreign to Jonah. This wouldn't be something outside of his context. Jonah knew that this is in line with his calling, but he said, no thanks. Jonah knew that this was in line with who he was as a follower of God, but he said, no thanks. And God wanted to give him a second chance. And now God does, Jonah goes through the city and talk, you know, listen up, you losers, you know, pay attention. You're not going to make it. This wickedness, 40 days, and this lawlessness will be torched. That's it. And he walks out of the city. He preached that message from end to end. There was no love in it. There was no compassion. <laughs> it was just straight up in your face. And God used it. He said, okay, I can work with that. And the Bible says the hearing went into the ear of the king of, the, of Nineveh, and the king of Nineveh was torn to the heart, right? And so the king of Nineveh called for a fast, and he called for repentance, and he called for, for, for bowing down unto the God of heaven. What's also interesting about this story is the Ninevites worshipped a fish god called Dagon. You see this god occur several times through the scripture. Dagon is a fish god. And Jonah, this prophet, gets spit out of the mouth of the fish, comes walking through Nineveh, you know, so God not only used Jonah within his context, he spoke a language to them that they would understand, right? He spoke to them in the language of the culture. You, you get that? God speaks to you. He uses you inside the context that you are existing in, and he wants to speak to the people around you in the language that they understand, right? D do you speak business? Do you speak education? Do you speak family? Right? What do you speak? What do the people around you speak? God wants you to speak about him in that language. You understand that? Do you speak music? All right? What do you speak? God wants to use you in your contacts, and he wants to speak to them on a language that they can understand. It's crazy. Crazy. And so Jonah's mad, right? Jonah's, the Lord spares the city. He gives them another 150 years. He gives them more time. He said, I'm going to give him another generation. He's going to give him another three, four generations, right? I'm going to be merciful to the third and fourth generation. I'm going to give it to him. And he gives it to him. And Jonah's like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you'd do this. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were forgiving. I knew if they repented, you'd relent. I knew it. And Jonah's mad. The Bible says he got angry. And then he got depressed. And he went and sat underneath a tree. And he's depressed, sitting under a tree just depressed. And the Lord shows up to him. And while Jonah's under the tree, the, God, the Lord caused the tree to wither and die, right? That's what the Bible says, that the tree that Jonah was sitting under withered and died. Now, all of a sudden, Jonah's exposed to the sun. And Jonah begins to lament because he doesn't have shade. And the Lord shows up and says, Jonah, why are you crying about a tree? Why are you crying about something that, that, you, that you sit under shade? You have compassion for the tree, but you have no compassion for these people, right? This is what he tells him. He says, you have a compassion on a plant that died. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't make it grow. The Lord says, I did that. But plants' lives are short-lived. They spring up quickly and then they die. Nineveh has 120,000 people in it who do not know their right hand from their left. And what he's speaking of is small children. That's what the Lord is saying. There's 120,000 children in that city that don't know their right from their left. Should I not be concerned about that city? He asked Jonah, right? Jonah, you're freaking out because a tree died because all you operate from is your own self-interest. Your concern is only how this affects you. Your concern is what affects you. Your concern is not for the higher purposes that I've called you to. Ouch. What's that? He was suicidal. Oh, yeah. He got depressed. At the end, he said, Lord, kill me. It's like, I can't take it. Right? You contrast this story where God spares Nineveh, and you contrast it with another story where God wants to eradicate another nation called the Amalekites. And what's the difference between these two nations? Why did God say, destroy every single Amalekite, leave none alive? Because the scripture said they were infected up to the line of their children. They were both wicked they were both bloodthirsty. They were both cruel. They, were, they practiced child sacrifice in a manner that would, you would vomit 
if you saw what these people did. And there was darkness and thick darkness. It was just heightened and seeded with Satanism and every kind of demonic activity you could imagine. And the Ninevites were doing this. But the Ninevites somehow isolated their children from it. And so there was innocence within a generation. So God could look at Nineveh and say there's hope. There's 120,000 people that have not participated in this. There's 120,000 children that if I can turn this city around, they'll grow up knowing something that the generation before them didn't know. And in the Amalekites, the Amalekites would take their children and cause their children to participate in these crimes. Oh, how horrendous. You see it today in Africa. They subjugate children and stick, they, they, they stick AK-47s in their hands. And they immediately make them commit acts of violence and bloodshed. They corrupt their soul from the very beginning. These child armies that these African nations commandeer just show up. They, they raid schools, cut the arms off of the teachers, right? And take the children. Or they'll cut the tongue out of the teacher and take the children. They're doing it today, right? Can you imagine what it was like when demonic power was unbroken? I always tell people that. They're like, Jesus is a genocidal God. He killed the Amalekites. So? 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 How uncompassionate. The greater compassion is that you're still breathing. You have hope, right? Do you know what it's like to have a generation of people that are so indoctrinated with Satanism and so locked down that all, the, all of their consuming thoughts is that of evil? All of their consuming thought is that of bloodshed. The Bible contrasts this story. This is a great contrast if you're a student in the scripture because this is a great story. Because they think God's schizophrenic. Well, he spared Nineveh, but he killed the Amalekites. Dang straight he did. Yes, he did. And he didn't blink. Because he knows more than you do. He knows where the hope, if there's hope and he knows if there's not. And I can tell you, if there's an ounce of hope, the Lord will move on it. If there's a moment of hope, the Lord will move on it. But when it's hopeless and it's infectious and it's cancerous, he will cut it off. This is what he is. This is who he is. He's a king. And so in this case, there's 120,000 people. There's a generation that can be used. There's a generation that can turn it around. And so God looks at this and says, okay, there's hope here. Right? There's hope. I have hope with these kids. These kids are the ones that I can help and I can turn this thing around with. Isn't that how we are, parents? Our hope is in our children, right? Is it any wonder they want to corrupt the generation? Is it any wonder? <laughs> is it any wonder they want to water down the gospel? Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder they want to corrupt the young? They'll give up. Satan will give up this generation. He's got all the time in the world. He'll wait 50 years because he's trying to corrupt the next one. And then corrupt the one after that, right? And unless the Christian stands the post, it will happen. The Christian, you are watchmen on the walls, right? And we yield our schools to secular education. And we yield our children to godless indoctrination. And we sit passively by twiddling our thumbs thinking there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot wrong with that. There's a lot wrong with that, right? Your children are not property of the state. They're not. We fought a war of independence to make sure that nobody ever is property of the state. If you're new to Miami and you're not used to American culture, American culture is unlike anything else. We are not owned by our government. We are not dictated by our government. We are government of the people, for the people, by the people. There's no other government like it in the planet, right? And in Miami, a lot of times people think, well, we should operate because that's the way it works in the third world. That's not the way it works here. It doesn't work like that here right? This is, a, this is the land of the free. And we're free because the state doesn't tell us what to do. The government doesn't tell us what to do. And somehow we've lost this ideology, right? And we bow, we bow like cowering fools to a government that has no right to dictate to the people. We bow we bow. Well, they said we should do it. And the church leads the way. Leads the way. It's the pastors that are saying all of, well, we need to just do and submit to the Lord's government. Romans 13, pastor. Submit to the government. Not if the government's godless. 
Is it better to obey Jesus or obey you? Right? They forget what the apostles said in the book of Acts. They all want to quote Romans 13. Bow to the government. Be submissive to your government. I submit to one government and his name is Jesus. I'm not part of a presidency. I'm part of a kingdom. Right? And the church is the transformation agent in the earth. And we have to rise to the level of our purpose and stop capitulating and stop bowing. Understand what we were. This country was born and spawned in a revival. It was made by Christians. No matter how they try to erase it, it's not a, that's the fact. There's no king but Jesus was the cry of 1776. Look it up. They weren't a bunch of deists. They were revivalists. Revivalists. They were coming out of the second great awakening. There was a transformative spiritual revival that was happening in that time. It was the first great awakening. They were coming out of this awakening, and they're like, hey, we should create a government that reflects the kingdom on the earth. And here comes America. We're not Cuba. We're not Jamaica. We're certainly not England. We're not France. We're not Colombia. That's not what we are. We're the United States. That's what we are. Our Constitution matters. It matters. First Amendment. First Amendment. You guys want to know what the First Amendment said? Freedom of religion. Not the Fourth Amendment. Not the Fifth Amendment. Not the Thirteenth Amendment. Not even the Second Amendment. The Article One of the Constitution is that there will be no infringement upon religious worship, period. Period. Right? And in order to reinforce that, we give you the Second Amendment. You can have guns. So that your government is not tyrannical. So that your government doesn't impose a dictatorial will upon you and take from you the very rights your constitution gives you. And if you don't like it, that's the way it is here. Right? The Second Amendment wasn't so we could all have hunting rifles. It was to protect the people from a tyrannical government. July 4th, the holiday brought to you by citizens with guns. That's right. Yeah. The only holiday in the world that is brought to you by citizens with guns. True story. Don't ask me where that rant came from. That came from somewhere. <laughs> that has nothing to do with Jonah. <laughs> Amen. I think it needs to be heard. I think the capitulation and the bowing and the homage that we pay and we bow to the altars of culture needs to stop needs to stop church bowing at the cultures of culture bowing at the altars capitulation constant cowardice cowards 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 lions in our veins but we act like pussycats meow leaders are the worst leaders are the worst the people follow leaders right and we have weak leaders we have weak congregations. We have leaders who won't take a stand. So, so you know, just want you guys to know this. You know, I'll probably get in trouble at home when I say this, but we didn't close for one day. We didn't close for one week. We didn't close for one hour. I was here every single week through COVID. Every single week, right here. I didn't tell people to come, but I said I'm not abandoning the post that the Lord has assigned me to. If y'all don't want to come, I completely understand, but I will be found faithful when my father looks for me. He won't cast his eyes over elevate and go, where's the leader of the house? Oh, he's home with his socks on, preaching from his living room. God didn't call me to my living room. He didn't call me to my living room. He appointed me to a place in a position. Didn't close one day. Not one hour, not one minute. I said, Holy Spirit, do you want us to clue? And I just, I said, clue. And he said, absolutely not. His word directly to me was absolutely not. We went through the whole thing. I told everybody and to Jody's and the team's press. I said, look, you guys don't have to come. We had this conversation. I said, but I'm going to show up. I'm going to be here. I'll talk to the wall if I have to, right? I'll have my imaginary friends in the room. I'll invite the angels. Let them hear the gospel as well, right? Devils, you need to get pounded down a little bit too. But nonetheless, we're not going to capitulate. We're not, gonna, we're not bowing. I have a right to assembly. I have a right. State has no right. It shall not be impeded upon. Read it. They have no right to impede upon the gathering of the church at all. Right? Cowards. 
One pastor in California sued the state of California. He got $7 million because they told him he couldn't close. And do you know why? Because they have no right to tell you you cannot close. They have no right to tell you that. And he took them to law and spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of the church's money to defend the right that was given to them. And they won. And they won. That's right. They don't have the right to tell you you cannot close. They don't have that right. They don't have it. And what happens is, is they force it on you and they tell 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 you. Hitler said, if you say it long enough, the people will believe it. He said, tell a lie long enough and the people will believe it. That's Nazism, people. That's, that's socialism, people. That's demonic power. That's not God. Fear is not the Lord. Any decision made in fear is always the wrong one. Write it down. Write it down. Don't make any decision, but don't, definitely don't make it in fear. I will not decide, but I will not decide out of fear. I'll stand neutral. You're going to make a decision? Nope, but I'm not making that one. Because I know fear decisions are always wrong. Always wrong. I may not know what the faith decision is, but I'm not making a fear-based decision. That I know. That I know. Rise up. Amen. Rise up. Become who you are. If the lambs become lions. <laughs> what do you do when things don't go your way? Let's just ask that question. Can we, can we ask that question? <laughs> God's choice is mercy, not judgment. The Bible says this, James 2.14. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a higher, it's a high, I want you to say it's a higher power. It's a higher ethic. It's a higher movement. It's a higher ethos of the kingdom. Mercy is greater than judgment. That's completely contradictory to human nature, right? When we do wrong, we want mercy, don't we? But when somebody wrongs us, oh, we want judgment. Oh, I want it all. Take it all from them, right? But mercy is greater than judgment. What do you do when things don't go your way? You choose faith over fear. Jonah was freaking out, right? Can you imagine this? Jonah is against a city that has been terrorizing his people for generations, the Ninevites were not nice. I've shared this with you before. They were not nice people. They were terrorizing, bloodthirsty, wicked, and cruel, and dominating people. And they were constantly afflicting Israel. And God wants to spare them. And so now the Lord spares their capital city, Nineveh. And what is, what is, what is Jesus, what is Jonah thinking? What does this mean? Right? He's probably afraid. Does this mean the terrorism will continue? Does this mean the trials and the torture and all of the things that these people have been imposing upon us is going to continue? He doesn't understand what this means. And in his heart, he's probably thinking, these people are terrorists, Lord. And you're having mercy on them? Give me a break. But he had to trust that Jesus, just because it wasn't the way he wanted, the Lord was going to use it. He had to trust that God has a higher purpose to what's going on here because the Lord told him to do it. He had to trust that God is good in spite of what he thinks. Huh? Why don't you say this? Jesus is good in spite of my circumstances, in spite of what I think, in spite of what, my, what I experience. Right? My experiences must rise to the level of truth. That's right. We create theologies based upon our own experiences. Experience doesn't change truth. Truth changes experience. We are people who are led constantly. We create our theology of God based upon our experiences. The devil will give you experiences all day long. You want to believe God's not good? He'll pound you down. He'll beat you down. He'll give you a reality that says everything in your life is a disaster, and then he'll give you a lie on top of it and tell you God's not good. If he can get you to walk in experience right? Mainly just seeing God through what you experience. Experience is not your truth, Christian. Truth must become your experience. We pursue what is true. God is good. That is a truth, no matter what you're experiencing. There's a lot of reasons why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, but it's not because God's not good. It's not because he doesn't love you, and it's not because he's not for you. You see, we create mindsets and theologies and thinking that are based upon what we feel, what we think, and not what is true, right? Kingdom power is you pursue what is true until truth becomes your reality. 
Lord, you are good. I believe that, and I pursue your goodness. What are the issues, Lord? What are the hindrances here, Lord, that are preventing me from attaining your goodness? You see that everything's relationship. This kingdom isn't mechanical. There's mechanics in it, but it's relationship. If you want to activate the kingdom and you want the kingdom to flourish, there must be relationship. Oh, we all say we have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Really? Do you commune with him? Does he instruct you? Does he guide you? Do you speak with him? Do you hear him? Right? Do you let him penetrate the depth of your soul, even to the level of your vulnerability and pain? <gasps> well, I don't know about that, Pastor. No, we only allow, our, we allow the Lord to deal with us to the level of our comfortability. That's a fact. The people who are transformed are the people that allow God to penetrate their lives beyond the level of their comfortability. That's right. He's the one he goes deep within the soul and shows you what your condition really is and shows you the dysfunction, not only that is within you, but that is around you and upon you. You want to know, he'll show you. Your problem is the way you think. Can any of you hear that? Oh, no, you wouldn't be able to hear that. What if God told you that? What if God told you your thinking is wrong? Your thinking is incongruent and inconsistently with, with who I am. Could you take it? I don't think half of you in the room could take it. Not because you're not believers, you don't love God, but because you're the, you, the, the unwillingness to be vulnerable to hear that word. It's very hard to hear that word. It's very hard. This is why Christians create religious constructs around themselves all the time. They're walking around like with a religious construct. I'm okay, I'm fine, oh bless God, brother, hallelujah, oh bless God. They have this construct around them all the time, all the time. And everything outwardly looks great. Now, I'm not telling you to walk around puking on the floor with all your issues, but I am telling you to allow the Lord to deal with you in the hard places and the difficult places because that's what needs to change. When you're not experiencing God's goodness, there is a reason, and the reason is not him. It's not him, right? One of us is wrong, Kevin, and it's not me, right? One of us is off track here, Kevin, and it's not me. When I would ask him, and he would tell me, and I would argue, and I would debate, and to the point where I just figured out, well, he knows what my problem is. Even if I don't agree with it, he'd say, this is your problem. And I'd say, I don't agree. I don't agree with that, Lord. I don't agree. You know what he told me? And so I teach it. I teach what he teaches me. He says, your ego will always defend what is vulnerable to you. Every time I go to penetrate you in a vulnerability, your ego rises to defend what is vulnerable in you. Therefore, your, therefore, what is vulnerable in you will never change because your ego will always rise to defend what is vulnerable in you. And do you know what I said? Death to ego. Give me the spear. Where's my ego, Lord? There. Ugh! <laughs> we don't want emotional pain. We don't want to hear the difficult things. By nature, we would rather have our teeth pulled than to deal with emotional pain. Oh, it's true right? Root canal or deal with emotional pain? What time is the root canal, right? Schedule me for that because we don't want to deal with the inward pain. We don't want to deal with that, but that's where change is. That's where transformation is. This is the limitations that you see. Jonah had the same problem. Jonah could have learned from this experience, but he didn't. He could have saw that my heart is not congruent with the Lord's. The Lord wants mercy and I do not. Where is my malfunction? Why do I feel the hate? Where's the hurt in me? Where, what part of me needs to transform because my heart is not the same as his? He could have learned from that, but he didn't. He had to trust even if it didn't go his way. We can panic or we can pray. <laughs> right? We can panic or we can pray. We can worry or we can worship. Psalm 11.3 says this, if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? If everything is lost and everything is hopeless they are to remember that the lord is holy in his temple and he is still on the throne right no matter what you lose god is the god of the comeback no matter what you lose your father no one has the right to displace your father from his throne he is the ruling authority period right so if i lose everything will i have a father who's the king of the comeback right who will not only restore me, reconcile me, he will re-resource me if necessary. That's what he does. Well, I've been restored, but I don't have any resources. Happy day. 
Your father's name is El Shaddai. He's all sufficient. He's got gold and spades. He's got everything you need. Our problem is we live lives of exclusion and not lives of inclusion. Our lives are lived outside of a depth of a relationship with him. And we live in slavery because of it. We live in bondage because of it. And there are many people who want to integrate deeper with the Lord, but they don't know how. And the way that they're taught is very, very religious, mechanical. Read your Bible, pray. I'm all in. Read your Bible, pray. Go for that. But spend time with the Lord. Learn to hear his voice. Commune with him. Listen to him. Don't listen to him in pretentiousness. Jesus isn't going to tell you anything without your permission. He's not going to tell you the hard things of your life if you don't ask him. Well, if I had a problem, Jesus would tell me. No, he wouldn't. No, he would not. He will not tell you the hard things unless you ask. Ask him where the dysfunction is in your marriage and grab the chair. You're thinking, it's her. I know it's going to be her. Where's the dysfunction, Lord? And he's going to go, whoop. He's going to start with you. And then she's going to go, where's the dysfunction in the marriage? I know it's him. I know it's him. I know, I know, I know it's him. And he's going to go, whoop. He starts with you. You have to, he's not going to tell you anything unless you ask him. So don't assume that God approves. Or don't assume that God's, if there was something wrong, he would tell you because he doesn't. He doesn't. He tells you when you ask him. When you ask him, he'll tell you. And then you're only going to change when you stop arguing over what he tells you. He's going to tell you. You have a commitment problem. <gasps> I don't have a commitment problem. I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. Well, you didn't ask the devil. Didn't you just ask the Holy Spirit? When you ask the Holy Spirit, guess who's talking? No, the whole, I tell Christians this all the time. How do I know I'm hearing the Lord? The Holy Spirit doesn't stand in line. He doesn't say, oh, they asked me, but I'll, I'll, let, I'll let all you devils speak first. The Holy Spirit subordinates to no one. He's not subordinating to anyone. And when you ask the Holy Spirit directly, he will tell you. 100% he will tell you. Because you are a covenant daughter and a covenant son. You are heirs of his voice. And you are heirs of his kingdom. He will tell you. You may not like it. You may not want to hear it. Right? But nonetheless, he'll tell you. Say it with me. He never tells me things to harm me. He always tells me in order to help me. Right? We go to doctors or whatever it may be and we try to get help and the doctor sometimes has to tell us what our dysfunction is. We don't want to hear that, do we? Right? <laughs> I was counseling this couple one time, not because I want to do marriage counseling. God help me now. You know? <laughs> but... Um, you know, the woman kept going and going and going. She kept changing marriage counselors. She must have changed like six until she found the one that would tell her what she wanted to hear. Literally. She didn't, she kept changing the counselor until she got the person to tell her what you want to hear. You can do that. You can do that. You're not going to be changed. You're not going to be helped. You want the Lord to tell you what you do not want to hear. You want the Lord to tell you what you cannot hear. Right? You have to give him permission. Lord, Holy, come on, let's just do it. Holy Spirit, <laughs> I give you permission to tell me what I cannot hear and to tell me what I don't want to hear. I give you permission to show me what I cannot see and to show me what I don't want to see as it relates to the brokenness in my life and the impediments to my relationship with you. He's going to tell you. You're going to just brace yourself for the week. You might want to put a notepad in your car, right? Because he's going to tell you. You may be driving, you may be listening to the radio, trying to get your favorite song on. The Holy Spirit's going to go, oh, I just want to talk to you a little bit. He may not be like that, but he's going to start showing you things. He's going to show you memories. He's going to cause things to come to pass because you just gave him permission to tell you. You're not going to know what to do with it. But I tell people all the time, I'm like, 50% of the fight is in knowing what the dysfunction is. If you... <laughs> You can't fix a, fix a dysfunction that you don't know that's there, right? So that's half the battle. The Lord is holy on his throne. No one can displace him. God will restore you. God will turn it around. Genesis 50 says this, as what you meant for evil, the Lord turned for good. God is the master of turning evil into good. It's what he does. It's what he does. He doesn't lose. 
right? Joseph, his brothers tried to kill him. This is the story in Genesis. They tried to murder him. Well, we didn't, murder didn't go over too well. What do we do? Let's sell him as a slave. I know. And they sell him as a slave and send him down to Egypt, long forgotten, long forgotten. Some of you have been sold off. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have been left for dead. Jesus found Joseph and said, I'm not done with you yet. Took him through a process of training. Took him through a process of circumstances. Remember Joseph had the, had the coat of many colors? Remember that? You guys remember that? He had dreams where his father and mother were bowing to him. Remember that? He had dreams where his brothers were bowing to him. Remember that? Right? And he went to the prison. And in, you know why? Because he wasn't ready to inherit what God had promised. He had to go through a process of change. David was the same thing. He was anointed at like 15 years old. I think it's the story of David. And he ran for almost, what, 13, 15 years? Right? He was anointed, and the next 15 years of his life, he spent it on the run. We think just because we have an anointing on our lives, all of a sudden, boom, we're going to step right into it. No way. The anointing is a promise and an invitation of what can, should, and must be. Right? God does a preparation in, the, in what happens. In what it, so in the, preparing, in the preparing process, what the enemy is constantly trying to get you to do is to quit. Well, if you were really anointed, David, don't you think you'd be sitting on a throne by now? Just throw in the towel, you know? Well, Joseph, if that vision was really true, why are you down here, you know, eating cockroaches in an Egyptian prison? Right? Surely, just give up. Joseph's story was humility. David's story was perseverance. Huh? He had to learn to not give up. He had to learn his value and worth. He had to learn David was raised in a house where he was forgotten. And he had to learn that even if my father and mother forget me, the Lord will never forget, forget me. He learned that. He learned that. Right? Joseph learned humility. Joseph shaved. That's the key to that whole story. You should read it sometime. I think the story of Joseph. What's the key to the story of Joseph? Joseph shaved. To an Israelite, that is the ultimate act of humility. To an observant Jew at that time in that world, they were not to shave because only slaves and pagans shaved in their mind. To a Jewish mind, a slave and a pagan shaved. And so when Pharaoh called for him, the Bible says Joseph shaved. And all of a sudden, heaven recognized. There it is, right? The act of humility, the act where he will humble himself willfully, right? Whatever it takes. Whatever you got to do, Lord, I humble myself. I don't have any good ideas. You're the only good idea I have. He shaved. And then his brothers and everybody bowed. The dream and the vision came to pass. He says, as for you, what you meant for evil, the Lord turned for good. Jesus is the final answer. It's number two. I got to get moving. <laughs> what do you do when things don't go your way? Remember, Jesus is the answer. He's the final answer. Your circumstances, come on, my circumstances are not the final answer. Jesus is the final answer, right? It's his story. History is his story. God does not control all of the internal choices within this world. He does not control all of the circumstances within this world. But he does control what's called the meta-narrative. He controls the ultimate outcome of all things. The choices and the things that happen... He doesn't control them. He allows man to make his own decisions, but he himself takes those decisions and builds the currents into the meta-narrative, right? God has a meta-narrative, a narrative that is above all others. It's a, a narrative is a storyline. Meta means above all things. So there's a storyline that's above every other storyline, right? The storyline of your life. God wants to use the storyline of your life in a meta, in, as part of the meta-narrative, right? You're built on purpose with a purpose. And so God does not control everything that goes on in your life. He doesn't even control your choices. He lets you. But he works everything out to good. Do you understand what that means? Right? And it says this. We know that God works all things out to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when God is working things out in your life, he's working it out according to his purpose in your life. You understand that? Where people sit there and, and, you know, the modern church and, the, you know, these pastors, the rah-rah team wants to say that everything God does, God's all about your vision. God's all about your dreams. God's all about your plans. I got news for you. No, he's not. Who told you that? The Bible doesn't say that. The Lord is for you. This is true. But he is for you in the context of his purpose for your life. Jesus isn't off there going, hey, what do you want to do, Kevin? You know? 
What he wants me to do is discover my purpose in him, discover my calling in him, discover what it is that he has for me, right? And in that, pursue my purpose in that direction. And God will take every circumstance in my life, failures, mistakes, poor choices, whatever they may be, destructions, despairs, whatever, and he will take those choices and he will continually work everything back to the current of his purpose in my life. God sometimes rescues you but you always still feel like you're off track. I meet Christians all the time. They're rescued, but they still feel off track. They're rescued, but they still feel off track. Yeah, God's gonna rescue you. He's the ultimate first responder, right? You know, 911. <laughs> Jeremiah 33.3 is better than John 1.1. Call on me and I'll answer you, right? So Jeremiah 33.3 is Jesus is 911, right? It's his phone number. So we call on the Lord and he helps you and he's the first responder. He'll show up, he'll make things happen, he'll fix it. He'll stabilize you. He'll triage you. He'll get you fixed. He'll stop the bleeding. He'll make everything start working again. But then people that experience that, they still feel like they're off pace. They still feel like they're out of context with what God wants, right? Because he's not about you in the sense of you, glorious you. He's about you in him. It's relationship, right? So ladies, you want to do it with your husband. Is there any married ladies in the room? You want to do it with him. Am I with you? Are you with me on that, right? Come on, don't lie to me now. You want to do you want to experience life with him, don't you? Right? Men tend to be more independent than women are in that regard within the relationship. Guys go off on their own. And what oftentimes men fail at is they fail to understand that the woman wants to come along. Right? She doesn't want to be the adventure, but she wants to go on the adventure. Right? She might freak out along the way. You might have to strap her to the mule, crack her on the rear end and say, we're going this way. Right? So calm down. Right? <laughs> just kidding. I've done that to Sherry many times. No, I'm just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> but what happens is, is, we, is, is there, there are natures that the woman possesses that are the heart of the father. When God divided Adam, he divided the nature. He gave Adam his nature, and he divided Adam from Eve. And what happened was, Adam didn't get all of God's nature anymore. She got some of God's nature too. That's why the two shall become one. They're had, right? It's just symbolizing the completeness of the unity of God in the relationship. So the, woman's, the woman has strengths and, and weaknesses and, and dreams and desires and, and innate parts of her heart that the man can never possess without a woman. It's just the way it is. And the woman has, and the man has innate things and created things within him that the woman can never have without the man. Because together they are one. They're ehad. They're, they're considered a single person. And guys oftentimes want to run off and be independent. They don't understand that that woman's desire to be a part of this is that, that depth. Not you know, There's dysfunctional parts of everything I'm talking about. So it's not this idealism. But the core of that desire to be a part of that relates to the heart that she has been given by her father. Because the Lord wants to be a part of it. Do you understand that? He, that nature that she has to want to be a part of what's going on, I want to be in the middle of this, I want to be a part of this, you know, I want to help with this, I want to create this, I want to do this together. I don't want to do it by myself, I want to do it together. That nature that she has to do that comes from the Lord. That's not just her being irritating, right? That comes from her being the Lord. And that desire that the man has to be valiant and take the hill and run off and see what lies beyond and, you know, explore and conquer. That isn't because he's just annoying and independent. It's because a heart that he has that God has given him with that drive, right? And the oneness within the relationship. Hey, it is Valentine's Day, right? It's coming up on Valentine's Day, so we might as well talk about marriage. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm off my notes so bad today, it's not even funny. But I'm coming back to it, right? So the heart, that what happens, the, heart, the difficulty within marriages is, is the oneness, the two shall become one. That's where the rub is, right? The submission one to the other. My life for your life, my life for your life, my life into your life, my life into your life. You're no longer independent. <laughs> Hate to break the news to you, but when you're married, you're no longer independent. God doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it that way. That's why he sees, he sees divorce as a tearing. His view of divorce is a tearing. It is a separation of something that has been formed together because God doesn't see it that way. And our attitudes are, it's like, oh, you want me to give up who I am to become, to be with you? Duh, 
Well, you want me to give up who I am to become with you. Duh. That's the game, ladies and gentlemen. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never, you'll never succeed in marriage. It's not, I do whatever I want on all things. I do what I want sometimes. She does what she wants on sometimes. We give ourselves space. We have space, but we also agree and collaborate on probably 80% of everything. And sometimes she gets it with the way she wants it that way, you can have it. And sometimes I get it the way that I want, less times than I want, but nonetheless, I still get it the way that I want. Right? It's the union of the relationship that happens, and that's what happens. Marriages fail because of in, like, as the, under, the, the misunderstanding that this is not an independent culture. Marriage is not independence. You cannot be independent and be married. And all the successful married people said, that's right. You cannot be married and maintain all of the levels of your independence. You can't. You'll get some. You'll get to keep some, but you're not keeping all of it. Right? And the conformity is into her. What does she want? What does she need from me? What is acceptable? And her conformity is into me. What do you need? What do I, what do you want? And she conforms to, in order for the relationship to work. Some things don't matter to her. Some things don't matter to me. I don't care, you know? But some things do matter to me, and some things do matter to her. And that's the conformity. And that's also where the, the friction comes from too, right? And all the married people said, there we go, exactly. Be patient, it's not over, right? Number three, be patient, it's not over. We're called to live our lives according to vision. We're called to live, Christians are not supposed to be visionless. Where there is no vision, the people. So are you supposed to live by vision? Yes or no? If you don't want to perish, the answer is yes. Perish where? Into nothingness. Perish where? Into meaninglessness. Perish where? Into hopelessness, right? Lives of quiet desperation was where you will perish without vision. But not just vision, his vision, right? And this is the art, Christian. We are relational artists. The Lord is a relational artist. The art is in developing that. Fortunately, most Christians, unfortunately, we don't even think about God's vision because we focus our vision based upon the television. This is a fact. Most Christians' visions are directly related to the television. We do what the talking head says. Do, 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 da, 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 da. They just did a, some Pew Research just did a study, and they said that, pe- that the modern church is evangelized more or indoctrinated more from modern television or the evening news than it is from the gospel. And so we've surrendered our influence to the news, to the voices within the culture. And you know what that's called? It's called subordination, and the devil will own you. When you subordinate yourself to a voice that is not your father's, the devil will own you. He will own you. He will dominate the fear. He will dominate the, every, every voice that you submit to. You submit to the voice of fear, fear will own you. It will own you. Any area. You submit to the voice of greed. You submit to the voice of culture, of selfishness, of me first, gimme, gimme, gimme. That will dominate you. The devil doesn't share. He dominates with a willfulness to control. That is not the voice of your father. Any area of your life where you have submitted yourself to the voice of, of, that is not your father's, you need to repent for. You need to recognize and break all covenants and oaths in that area because he's not yielding it. He won't yield it by default. You gave it to me, you have to renounce it. That's how the devil works, Christian. Oh, God will just take it away. No, he won't. No, he won't. He'll just save the world. No, he won't. Willful return. He saved the world. But man must willfully return. When you enter into these covenants and these voices of subordination, you must acknowledge them and repent and break the covenant with the devil. You have to. (gasps) I don't believe that. I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. Okay. Keep crazy. That's what I tell people. Keep crazy. We're called to live a life of vision. Right? Could it be that fear dominates you because you've submitted your whole life to the voice of fear? Could it mean that selfish dominates you? You have selfish impulsions and, and greed because you've submitted yourself to the life, to that voice? Could it be that you've submitted your life to the voice of value and worth and you are under, you are under the domination of what others have told you you are? You are under the, because you have yielded to that? You have submitted yourself to that? 
and therefore you are under that. To the master that we submit ourselves is the is to, to the to whatever we submit ourselves to. The Bible says that becomes our controlling influence. And Christians have submitted themselves, to, and, and they buy the lies and the guilt and the shame of their past, and they're and they're under the voice of the of their past. They're under the voice of, of the pain and the trauma, or the voice and the pain and the trauma of everybody else that says to them. They say with their mind and with their mouth that I'm a son or a daughter, but their lives are under the dominant influence and control of a voice that is not their father's. Just a thought. Holy Spirit, show me. Come on, you guys want to do this? No? All right, we don't need to do it. I got to have more than four people that want this, right? We're not a religious church, right? Come on. We are Christians. We are spirit-filled, kingdom-powered people. We're not up here doing religious pretenses and songs and dances to impress people with my oratory skills, right? My rhetorical art, you know? It's about life transformation, and this is how it works. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to reveal to me every area of my life where I've subordinated myself to a voice that is not the voice of my fathers. I, de I deny my ego the right to defend itself, and I give you permission to penetrate my soul to the point of vulnerability. Tell me, even if it hurts, in Jesus' name. Habakkuk says the vision is for an appointed time. It will come to pass. When God gives you a vision, it will come to pass. The Lord works in times and seasons. Sometimes, Christians, you need a change, but God needs the time and the season in which to bring the change. You blew it up, right? You planted the wrong crop. You did all kinds of crazy things. God changed me. God changed me. He hears your prayers, and he's going to change you. But he needs time and seasons. The limitless God has chosen to bind himself and, and, and to d d limit himself to the basis of his law. And he's chosen to limit himself to the basis of time and space. He can do anything he wants to, but he works through time and space. And so when God is making a change in your life, it's going to be in a time and it's going to be in a season. We want it immediately. He'll relieve you immediately a lot of times, but sometimes it takes time and it takes another season for that to change. Is anybody with me? You understand what I'm saying? And in order to make the time and the seasons, you need to till the soil. Some of you have been, oh, I just call out for the rain of heaven. The Bible says there was no rain upon the earth because no one was tilling the soil. What does that mean? The work of preparation Right? We want God to do things, but there are things on our part that we need, to make, we need to prepare for. The Christian that tells me, oh, we don't need to do anything. God's done it all. We don't need to work, Pastor. You don't know what anything, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. So if that's, that, if that, I tell the people out there, like, if that's you, stay on your couch, Betty Sue, because nothing's going to change. You have to get up and till the soil. You have to make the changes and the preparations that are necessary. If you're going to plant an orange grove, you have to prepare. The, if you're believing God for an orange grove, then prepare your life for an orange grove. There's certain types of soil. There's certain types of climate. There's certain types of, of cultivation that's required to grow that. Some of you are in the wrong atmosphere. You're believing Jesus for oranges, and you're in a world that only grows, grape, or only grows apples. You have to change the environment in which you're in. You have to change the season in which you're in. You have to get up and cultivate the soil. You've got to remove the rocks from the field. You have to work a little bit. You have to look at the soil of your life and say, where are the impediments to me tilling the soil? Where are the rocks in my field that will, that will break when the plow comes or that will break the plow? And you've got to get out there. And you know a lot of times rocks, you've got to move them by hand. You ever seen a farmer? They don't have a machine for that. They got a backhoe, but the backhoe takes more dirt than is necessary. When they're taking stones out of a field or roots for that matter, they dig around the root because you have to do it almost manually. It's crazy how that works. Things in our field, we have to remove manually. We have to identify them and move them. You need to sow the seed. What is sowing the seed? Say it with me. Prepare the soil. Sow the seed. This is all about me, Pastor. Why are you talking to me like this? Because Jesus loves you. You'll need to sow the seed. What is that? You got to sacrifice. You got to give up what you have to become what you must be. Who do you need to become in order to fulfill the destiny that God set before you? What do you need to let go of 
to fulfill the destiny that God set before you. Some of you, you, are, you have an identity problem and you have, you're in an identity that is not congruent with the destiny that God has set before you. You need to become the person that God has called you to be. You need to become the person that, that exemplifies and mirrors the destiny that God has set before you. You have to change. You have to make sacrificial commitments. <laughs> I know, it's getting quiet. You have to make sacrificial commitments. You have to sow seed. Jesus does all the work. The sower sows the word, sows the seed. Is that right? right? I mean, this, this conversation goes on and on in Scripture, and nowhere in Scripture is Jesus doing all of it. You're doing some of it. The Lord provides the rain. He causes the rain to come upon the earth, the Bible says. So he tells us in Isaiah, you till the soil, you sow the seeds, you believe God for what you want from him and where, the, where your heart is, let him instruct you, prepare the soil. Some of you believe God for nothing, and you know what you're going to get? Nothing. Others of you, you want an orange grove, but you have soil that can only grow apples. If you want oranges, you better change the soil, the environment, everything around you, or you're not getting oranges. The way that oranges are fertilized. I could tell a lot of stories on this. I live this stuff. You have to change. You have to live from internal perspectives. We set our eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen. The third, the fourth, third thing that happens is, say it with me, plowing, plowing. Sowing. sowing. Here's a big one. Say it with me. Harvesting. Do you know how many Christians I get? They pray, they believe God. God brings it to them and they're too afraid to take what he brings them. Too afraid. You know why? Because as long as it's a vision, it's safe. The moment he brings it to you, when he brings you your harvest and he brings you the opportunity, now it requires commitment of you, right? And fear now comes into play. So, but as long as it's a dream, oh, God's gonna give me that, God's gonna give me that, but then it shows up and you're like, whoa, I don't know. We leave our harvest in the field. You pray, you believe God, you ask him for something, he brings it to you, but you're too chicken to take it. You're too afraid to step through the door of opportunity. You're too afraid to lay your hands on it. Well, how do I know it's God? Did you ask for it? Did you ask for it? He does, if you ask him for bread, he's not giving you a stone. If you ask him for fish, he's not giving you a serpent. Well, I don't know, this might be a serpent. Did you ask Jesus for it? Did he provide it? Then take the opportunity. Move through the door. Don't cry when your harvest comes. Oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad that person lost their job so I could get promoted. I feel so bad. <laughs> Don't you cry when your harvest comes. If God needs to displace one to give it to you, so be it. If that person needs to lose a contract in order for it to come to you, so be it. There's nothing fair about favor. Human empathy does nothing. God is not moved with human empathy. He's moved by kingdom principles. It's another story. I'm running out of time. <laughs> I want to say this, though. I'll give you this one. Don't say it with me. Don't jump to conclusions. All right? Christians have a bad habit of giving opinion and preference and calling it discernment. <laughs> they, give them, they like to give you their opinion and say, this is what I discern. Right? They like to give you their preferences and tell them it's a discernment or a word from the Lord. Everything you view will be viewed through paradigms. You have filters. If your filters are muddy... You will view things from the Lord muddy. If your filters are religious, I know it's going to get quiet on this one. If your filters are religious, you will view things from the Lord religiously. If your filters are through the lenses of pain and losses in your life, then everything you view will be through pain and losses. If you have a diminished view of God and you do not truly believe that God is good and you believe that everything is God's will, then everything in your life will be viewed through that lens. Bible says we are renewed by the transformation of our what? Of our mind. The transformation of our perspectives and the basis upon which we view things. You have to change your paradigms. Right? Be warned. There is no, there is no end of opinions, the Bible says. Ecclesiastes 12. Everybody be aware. Everybody's got an opinion. And they're ready to express it. <laughs> and if you consider everyone, you're going to be exhausted. Everybody's got something to say, right? Everybody's got an opinion. And a lot of times we jump to conclusions and we give an opinion about a circumstance and about the things that happen to us and we form our own opinions. Don't form your own opinions. Look to the Lord. Learn from the experience, evaluated experience. I can't go there, but I can go here. Say it with me. 
evaluate the experience. Right? When things don't go your way, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you four things. Ready? This is called an after-action report. Say it with me. After-action report. You evaluate the experience. I'll give you four little simple things. You ask, this, you ask these questions. What went wrong? What went right? What was missing? And what was confusing? So when, you experience, when you're evaluating an experience, no matter what it was, whatever you, you're like, okay, what went wrong here? What went right here? What was missing here? What am I confused upon? That gives you the understanding or at least a basis to which you can evaluate experiences on it by. Uh, Deuteronomy 11.2, remember what you have learned through the Lord by experience. Remember to evaluate the experiences from the Lord. Last one is be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful for what? That God's in control. God, be grateful that you can't screw it up. You can't screw it up. You can't mess it up. You can mess up a lot of things, but you cannot mess up this, this, this relationship with the Lord. He's always for you. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he walked, he walked the blood path in a cauldron of fire. And he made a, a blood covenant with Abraham. And he said, I will bless you. And surely in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply you. Abraham was asleep. What's the moral of the story? It had nothing to do with Abraham. God's saying, you can't mess this up if you try, Abraham. I'm binding myself to you even if you don't want it. If, he is, if we are faithless, he is what? That's right. You can screw it up. But you know what he is? The God of the comeback. He's the God of the, he, he makes it happen. He's the God of the re-resource. Go again, go again, go again. This is who he is. Give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, but it says give thanks in all circumstances. I'm not thankful because that something happened. I'm thankful in the circumstance. I'm not thankful for the losses that I've experienced. I'm thankful in the midst of the losses that I've experienced because my losses are not my story. You understand that? I am not thankful for the things that happened to me. I am thankful in the things that happened to me because God is greater than anything I'm experiencing, right? No matter what's happening to me, my God is greater. My God is greater. He'll change it. Relationship is the key, Christian. Relationship is the key. Every time I say that, because I've heard that kind of statement, God's going to change it. God's going to, I've heard this for decades as a believer. But the question is, is how does he change it? Right? Of course God's going to change it, but how does he do it? He does it through relationship. Interpersonal relationship with him and the Holy Spirit is not an option. <laughs> it's not. And you cannot relate to the Lord merely on the basis of logos, which is the written word. You must relate to him on the basis of spirit. You must relate to him on the basis of rhema, which is revealed knowledge by the spirit. Logos is important, but logos is not everything. God will speak to you, even if you read the Bible. Reading the Bible is wonderful. I love the Bible. But if the, if the Bible is not revealed to me, it means nothing. I need this interaction with the Holy Spirit to show me and to illuminate and to guide me. Lord, I'm going to change it. There was a woman, she was bawling. She was in a terrible situation. And the Lord kept telling her, I'm, I'm going to change it, I'm going to change it. And time was going on, and it seemed like it was getting worse. And she told me the story. She's like, you know, she was driving in a van. She didn't get a scripture. She got a word and a promise, right? She's driving in the van, and she's crying. And she said, I was driving my car, and I was crying. She's like, Lord, you need to change it. And she said she was just basically raging on the Lord. When are you going to change this? And he said to her, he called her by name. And he said, so-and-so, I'm working on it. Yeah? He said, I'm working on it right? I got it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Come on, we can clap. He's working on it. I'm working on it. And within a very short amount of time, he reoriented her whole life. But he had to put people, places, and things into position in order to deliver her, right? You stuck your head in the vice, and so now God's got to get some people in place to get your head out of the vice. You understand? You put yourself in the circumstance or life happened to you, that your deliverer will show up. He's going to make it happen, Right? But I want to tell you that one of the biggest impacting things out of that story is that she was calling on the Lord and she was crying out to the Lord and she was, had her issues and she was telling Jesus how she felt. And in the relationship, even in her frustration of communicating with him, she was still communicating with him. She was communicating with him. 
Lord, when's this going to happen? Lord, you know what's getting desperate. I don't know. You know, I'm freaking out. Where are you? I'm working on it. She said the voice was so strong to her in her heart that she just said everything fell silent. She's like, I stopped crying. (laughs) It's like, I'm working on it. She's like, okay, okay, you know, I got it. Chill out. There's Cinnabon. Go get a Cinnabon, right? Pull in a Starbucks. Get yourself a, you know, a cinnamon roll. Go, Go ahead. Just calm down. I got it. It's all under control, right? I know it looks bad. I know it looks like you're going to lose everything. I know it looks like your entire life is going to implode and you're going to be ripped apart at the seams, but I got it. I got it. The Lord is your deliverer. That's why we thank him in the circumstances, not for them. Amen? All right, we have a prayer team. We're going to end. We're going to end here. I want to go further, but I can't. I'm out of time, but I do want to do this. I want to bless you guys. So we have a prayer team available for you if you need prayer for anything. And I want to bless you guys at home. May the Lord bless you. I want to bless everyone here as well. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.